Welcome back to the Global Startup Movement. I am your host, Andrew Berkowitz. Thank you for tuning in to the first episode of 2019. It is still crazy to me that it's 2019, but it's going to be a fantastic year. And we are starting it off strong as I am officially announcing our first ever Global Startup Summit. We are hosting a seven-day virtual summit with each day featuring a different world region with a keynote, two expert sessions, a panel discussion, and two startup spotlights on each day. This is a first-of-its-kind event, and I am so excited to be bringing it to you all in partnerships with some fantastic organizations, including Launchpad, Startup Canada, Startup Bahrain, and many more. You can reserve your free pass at globalstartup.tv. But now on to today's show, we are joined by Chris Olson, the co-founder and partner at Drive Capital. Drive Capital was one of the original VC funds opening up shop in the Midwest. They launched their first fund in Columbus, Ohio, way back in 2012, before raising their most recent $300 million fund. On this episode, we dive into Chris's move from Sequoia to the Midwest and touch on the new legislation around Opportunity Zones, which is something that you'll be hearing more about on this show. But now, I'll pass it off to Chris Olson, the co-founder and partner at Drive Capital. Entrepreneurship has become a global phenomenon. Uncover the stories of entrepreneurs and investors worldwide. From Sub-Saharan Africa to Silicon Valley and beyond, here on the Global Startup Movement. Now, here's your host, Andrew Berkowitz. Chris, it's great to have you on the show. Why don't you kick us off by telling us a little bit about you and really tell us when the Midwest became top of mind for you as the next wave of startup investing. Sure. Well, thanks for having me on the show today. I'm, I'm thrilled to be here. Similar to, I'm imagining most people, the the concept of going to the Rust Belt to build a venture capital firm was not what I thought I'd be doing you know, six or seven years ago. And you know, if you told me that I'd be doing this, I'd have said you were crazy. I was a partner at Sequoia Capital and loved everything about Silicon Valley and, and still do. The thing that that happened, though, was, you know, life throws you these curveballs and you have to make a choice as to whether you get excited about them and, and you take a risk on them or not. And at the time, we were at Sequoia looking at all these other geographies. We'd been to China. We'd been to India. We'd opened up funds and partnerships and all these great places and really extended the Sequoia platform into all these geographies. And out of, you know, just the sheer kind of mentality of, of most folks in Silicon Valley, the concept of America was really that startups only happen in Silicon Valley. And we actually, we actually used to say within a bicycle ride of, of the office um, that there were far more attractive investment opportunities in uh, places like Israel and in, and in India than there were in the rest of America. So out of just sheer chance. One of the guys who was friendly with some of the partners at Sequoia was a guy called John Kasich, and he got elected governor of Ohio. And in the process of doing that, he built out his cabinet and asked one of the Sequoia partners, Mark Kwame, to come out and run economic development for him. So Mark now had never really been to Ohio before. He had grown up in Silicon Valley his whole life. When he came out here, he, he and if you were looking at me, you'd see him doing the, the quotes in, in uh, you know, my hands here. He discovered Ohio. And what he found here was something different than most people expect. He expected to see Rust Belt, all these jobs leaving, all these no founders, no entrepreneurs, no education system. 
And what he found was the opposite. What he found was it's actually a pretty big place. And you don't even think about it, but the, the, the GDP of, of a state like Ohio rivals most nations. And if you actually look at the, the, the GDP of the Midwest, at the time, it was the fifth largest economy in the world. It's actually grown now. Now it's the fourth largest economy in the world. It has 25% of all the research. It has in America, it has uh, more Fortune 500 companies than any other country in the world if it was a, a standalone country. And yet it doesn't have any venture capital. And so he had this concept that he, he started talking to me about. He said, you know, he, when he was in economic development, he said, you grew up in Ohio. Why don't you leave Sequoia and start a venture capital fund focused on investing in the Midwest? And, you know, I was immediately was was fairly dismissive of the idea. But as he started to dig into the data and discovered all the things I last took you through, I started to appreciate that while all these other geographies are fascinating, they're great places, that the Midwest was actually the opportunity of a lifetime. Because if we were right, if this was the invention frontier, the frontier for innovative companies and startups, then it had ramifications for the entire U.S. economy. Because startups in America have historically only been accessible to the 1% of people who live in San Francisco. Well, now, if we could prove that you could build world-class startups in Columbus or Ann Arbor or Chicago or wherever else, suddenly this next economy would be unlocked for the rest of America. And you know, cities all across the country would have a model for how they could reinvent their communities into innovation hubs for startups. And that, that was for me, you know, when that kind of emerged as a, the fact pattern, it felt like it was something that I just had to do. And so uh, I left Sequoia in, in 2012 to, to found the firm and, um, you know, Mark joined me and we are, are now six years into it and have a portfolio of, of 37 companies that we've invested in. We now employ almost 3000 people across our portfolio on all these Midwestern companies. And if anything, I can tell you that, you know, I'm obviously biased, but I will tell you that we're right, that there is a reason why companies in the Midwest have a better shot at being successful and it has nothing to do with economic development. It has to do with if you're a founder and you put your startup company in one of these Midwest cities, you have a better shot of building a successful company than you do in any other corner of the world. And we're here to invest in that and to support our companies with a model of investment that we were trained in, in at Sequoia and applying it to the raw ingredients that are, are here. You know, what really stands out to me with the Midwest ecosystems is really the sense of community that a lot of Midwest cities have, uh, especially when it comes to getting on the calendar of C-suite executives, uh, meeting with local angels, whatever it may be. And that stands in stark contrast to the environment in most large cities. But I'd be curious to hear why you decided to plant your flag in Columbus. Because when I think of Ohio, I really think of Cincinnati. Uh, I know there's a lot of great stuff going on there with the brandery, uh, with the work that Centrifuge is doing. Uh, but tell us a little bit about how you decided on Columbus. Yeah, so I mean, we, we started looking at it and said, my immediate bias was, well, we should put it in Chicago because that's the biggest city in the Midwest. And what we found was, you know, our assumption was that that was where there were more startups and more, more startup activity than anywhere else. What we found was that was not the case, that Chicago's got a lot going on, but you mentioned Cincinnati. Cincinnati's got a lot going on, but so does Ann Arbor, and so does Pittsburgh, and so does Indianapolis, and so does Madison. What we started to do was to realize that 
look for us, like ultimately what we are where we are finding the greatest number of investment opportunities is in the number of being in the closest proximity to the largest number of cities. So we, we got a map out and we literally, it was a Google map, but in Google maps, you can draw a radius around cities. And so we drew a 200 mile radius around every city in the Midwest. And we said, we would put the firm in the circle that had the highest number of urban cities and Columbus won because within a, a couple hour car drive of Columbus, I can get to Cincinnati, Indianapolis, Ann Arbor, Detroit, Cleveland, Pittsburgh, I've got Columbus here. And then, you know, Chicago is a one hour flight and there's one every single hour. It's actually really easy to get to Chicago. Um, you know, Minneapolis is a, is a hour and 15 minute flight. So we started to feel like of all of the places in the Midwest, this was this would be the place that put us in the closest proximity to the largest number of startup opportunities. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And so how have the type of companies in your deal flow pipeline really changed since you first arrived and started meeting with founders back back in 2013? Yeah, so it's been interesting. I mean, I think, you know, the, the thing that we do, the way that we invest here is you know, we get a lot of inbound investment opportunities at Drive. We see about 3,000 companies a year from people reaching out to us, either you know lawyers or folks emailing us at info at drivecapital.com. And I think what we found is that I could fill my calendar meeting with all of those companies and I'd be very, very busy. But the problem is it would be a very opportunistic way to spend my time. I'd be going from a meeting with an enterprise software company to a meeting with a next generation social network to a robotic startup. And you know, it's just really hard to be understand, have any point of view on these markets if, if you're reacting to things that way. So rather than do that, what we do is, is we proactively pursue themes that we're excited about. So robotics is a big one for us right now. And what we do is we go into these markets and we cold call companies on a global basis and say, look, I'm trying to find the market defining company in robotics and not just the, you know, the biggest robot or the fanciest robot, but the one that has the most compelling market opportunity. And as we call through these markets, we start to understand what's what's available in these different spaces. And as you do that, sometimes it's an early stage company that spins out of Carnegie Mellon. And we invested in a robotics company there called Robotney. And, and these guys are building these autonomous robotic farms. And it's, it's a wonderful opportunity. Um, other times there are companies outside of the Midwest. And we found a company in Baltimore that we were excited about. And we ended up relocating that company from Baltimore to Columbus because the founder felt like he was going to be in closer proximity to his customers. So it's been interesting as, as this has evolved and the themes that we've chosen to pursue have evolved, they've become decidedly more technical or, or what I would consider to be true technology companies than in the beginning. I think we had a lot more tech-enabled service companies that we were finding. And I, I, that's because the entrepreneurs, the founders and the inventors of these technologies are now coming out of these universities and realizing that I, I should just stay here. Like I shouldn't go to Silicon Valley. And so we just invested in a, a data center infrastructure company. And, you know, this is a company that I would have expected to be in Silicon Valley. And if I look through our second fund compared to our first, it's, it's fascinating to see how many more technical founders that we're, we're investing in and, and technology, true technology companies that we're, we're, decide, we're deciding to partner with. Well, I mean, do you think that is somewhat of a product of maybe the, the Midwest being more of a B2B environment than, than consumer facing? No, I, I think it's the, you know, I think it's just as B2C as anything else. If I look through our portfolio, um, there are just as many B2C companies here uh, as in other places. And, you know, look, 
again, I'm, I'm biased, but I, I think that the the business leaders here understand the typical U.S. consumer than those in San Francisco. You know, like, look, I'm, I'm sorry if you try and sell me a, a $17 lunch in any city outside of San Francisco, like people just aren't going to buy it. Um, if you want to look at like, where are those restaurant companies? Where are those food delivery companies? Where are those apparel companies? It's places like the Midwest where they've been selling all of those industries have already been built on and that expertise has been built with companies like, you know, L Brands or American Eagle or, um, you know, all at Wendy's or White Cat, like those companies, McDonald's, they're all headquartered here. And I think that consumer sentiment is actually better understood here than in other places. And our portfolio has, has decidedly uh, strong concentration of consumer companies um, as well as B2B. And, you know, in fact, one of our, our best performing companies is a company in the insurance space called Root. Root offers car insurance to consumers who don't want to call up their agent and get the same price that their parents got. This is a, a telematics powered mobile only insurance company. And, you know, this is a company that's, it is the fastest growing revenue business I've ever seen faster than any company in Silicon Valley. And it is, it is in fact a direct consumer company. Well, I mean, yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense to me that someone sitting in the Midwest would have much more empathy and be able to relate to the average American consumer much better than someone sitting in Silicon Valley. But was were, were $17 lunches, was that the norm at, at uh, Sequoia? Uh, they're the norm in San Francisco. I mean, if you know, if you, <laughs> that, that's just what it is, a grilled cheese sandwich and a soup. And, uh, you know, you're talking 17 bucks. That just, you know, that only works in certain places. Right. <laughs> And so you've um, you've said before that your your second fund, uh, your your three hundred million close, was was a much easier raise than your first. Uh, and I mean, do you do you attribute that to the the success of your first fund, or is that more of the actual thesis of the Midwest rising kind of playing out and and proving to be correct? Well, I, I think it's a lot more popular now to invest outside of Silicon Valley than it was in 2012. I mean, when we started this 2012, people thought people thought we were crazy. I mean, people were like, why would you ever leave Silicon Valley as a venture capitalist? That doesn't make any sense. And you know, now it's on the front page of The Economist. It's in The New York Times. It's on USA Today. It's you know, The newspapers are all talking about how Silicon Valley has maybe it's peaked. And I don't know that it's peaked or not, but I, I think that, that that sentiment is more commonly held than it, it was in the beginning. And I think that's because people are starting to see the successes emerge in these other places where you have companies like Duo Security getting bought for several billion dollars. And um, you know, there's a longer list of Cover My Meds getting bought for a couple billion dollars. There's a long list of you know, 50 plus companies that have been bought or gone public in the Midwest in the last five years at north of a billion dollars. Like that's a that's a lot of companies. But but you're you're not in the camp that's like you know Silicon Valley's dead. Like because I mean I see a lot of these headlines and sometimes I feel like it's it's kind of too uh, like like there, there's still a plenty of reasons why a VC should invest in Silicon Valley. But but you're you're on the camp that's like you know Silicon Valley's dead uh, and, and it's over, right? I don't look. I don't think Silicon Valley's dead. I mean, Silicon Valley saw fifty billion dollars of venture capital investment last year. That's a lot of money. That doesn't feel like dead to me. That feels yeah. like a lot of opportunity for uh, a lot of different people and businesses that are are being built there. And I think there's a lot of businesses that that should be built there. However, I think that you have a better shot at being successful 
in other places. And you have to either have access to uh, your unfair share of that $50 billion a year. And, and there will be companies that do that um, so that you can compete for engineering talent against Facebook and Google and those folks. Or you should just not try and out engineer Facebook or out hire Google. Why don't you put your company in a place where you've got the greenfield and, and you can very easily attract that engineering talent or you can easily attract that product talent. And I think that you're finding they, the alternative is so much more attractive in, in other places. But, you know, again, I don't think it's, it's dead at all. And I, I think we'll continue to see lots of stuff coming out of Silicon Valley. I just think that the, the rate of change in Silicon Valley, I think, will be far less than it is in other places. And if I look at the communities that we're investing in today, you know, the, the number of people working in startups and, and companies and the amount of money that they're raising now versus five years ago, you know, it's, you're seeing an exponential acceleration versus in Silicon Valley. I, I think you're going to see a, you know, a single digit kind of change over time. Yeah, no, I, I would completely agree with that. It's, it's been kind of crazy just to see how quickly this is all happening as well. Like you said, like in, back in 2012, this was just a thesis that you had and you were the crazy guys. That wasn't that long ago. That was like six years ago. I mean, this kind of shift has been happening very fast. And I saw that this uh, recent legislation around opportunity zones is something that I, I think is also going to uh, push the dial even harder. Um, but can you can you tell us a little bit about what your uh, maybe the conversations that you're having or what's changing within the, the, the Midwest VC community around this new new uh, opportunity zone act? Sure. So the, the federal government came out and created legislation that creates tax incentives for investors to build things in areas that are defined as opportunity zones. And, you know, fortunately, a giant amount of that real estate that is in those opportunity zones is, is here in all these Midwest cities and all these Midwest states. The, the, what we are seeing is that for certain kinds of companies, particularly companies that require a good amount of, of real estate. There is an ability to attract investment dollars that you can produce a net after-tax return at a far lower rate than you would have to in other places um, and outside of opportunity zones. And I, I think that's been an accelerator for our companies that are, are really looking at this and saying, you know, I need a big chunk of land. Now, is it going to help the software companies? I don't know. Not very much. The, you know, the gaming companies, not very much. Um, is it going to help our companies that, that require a, a, a huge footprint for you know, manufacturing? Yes, absolutely. And I think those are the types of companies that are there. And I, I think what I hope happens is that people can use these, these first types of businesses as a model, as an example for the kinds of investment that these communities otherwise wouldn't get. And they'll see the benefits in these communities. And then they'll be able to open the aperture on additional legislation that will expand so that those software companies, so that those gaming companies have a similarly attractive investment profile to investors who are excited about opportunity zones. And that could really accelerate the, 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 the amount of investment and the amount of, uh, of jobs that are available in these communities that have, have historically been in uh, under a lot of pressure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I still have a lot to read up and, and learn about the uh, opportunity zone, but it, for, for my, my initial impression is uh, that it's much more focused on real estate. Like you said, I guess it's, it's yet, yet to be seen how this is going to affect startup ecosystems in the, in the Midwest. But 
before we finish off with a quick fire round, we've been kind of talking about the um, the, the Midwest in in, a bro- in broad terms. But what are the uh, specific cities or specific ecosystems that you would say are starting to kind of accrue um, most of the, uh, the the big wins, the big companies, and and, and the talent in the, in the Midwest? So it's it's fairly distributed, but I will tell you that where we where we spend the most time is is in the cities that have the most investment. And that from a research standpoint, and so where you see federal labs or you see big major universities, that's where we see the most activity. So if I, if I were to look at my calendar, you know, you'd see me spending the most time in Columbus, Pittsburgh, Ann Arbor, Chicago, and Minneapolis. Those would be the five where I see the most activity. But there's still, there's a lot going on in Indianapolis. There's a lot going on in Cincinnati. Uh, but where we've gravitated have been really in those, in those five cities. Got it. Awesome. Well, Chris, we're going to finish off with a quick fire round. Four questions up to 60 seconds per answer. Sound good? Sure. Perfect. What is the last public investment you made into a Midwest startup uh, and why'd you make it? That's a good question. Uh, the last investment that we made was in um, was in a, a uh, let me think back. I got to remember which one's public. Hold on. Okay, the, the 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 most recent public investment that we made was in a uh, a spin out of a federal lab called Finite State. Um, this is a company that the team worked at Battelle on cybersecurity projects and recognized that there was this increasing number of internet connected devices, the Internet of of Things, and all of them were increasing the attack plane with which hackers could exploit weaknesses in organizations and have the ability to um, identify opportunities for for exploiting people's public information. So we found a, a, a world-class team of the, the experts in the space. Um, they had yet to form a business. We, we worked with them to, to create the company from scratch. Uh, they're incubated right now in our offices, and I think they're going to get their, their first customer here in, in, uh, before the end of the year. Awesome. So let's say that I'm in Columbus, Ohio. I have to catch a plane tomorrow. I have one more night in the city. Uh, what's the one thing that you recommend that, that I do before I leave? You've got to go to the short north. There's a, a part of town where this used to be a, 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 a blemish of, of urban blight. It has now turned into one of the most exciting centers for young people in particular. And it's now this this center of gravity for young people who are now finding office space and now opening restaurants and and living here. And I think you're seeing this model for urban development here that plays out in a a wonderful partnership between the community, the business community, and and all the other political constituents. What's your favorite business or startup book and why? My favorite startup book is The Old Man in the Sea. And I realize that's that's counterintuitive, but I, I think that the the messages in that book resonate with me every single day. Where the idea of persisting and things breaking and finding a way to continue to to push on no matter what the world throws at you are the most critical lessons that you need to know about building a business. That you know this is as much of about the emotional toll and your reaction to uh, unanticipated consequences that that you can turn into opportunities if you do it right and if you don't then you know you get in a whole bunch of trouble yeah no i mean i i i love that answer i mean i think books like the alchemist 
um, like Moby Dick. I mean, they're, they're not necessarily business books, but there's, there's wisdom in the stories that, you know, if you can, if you can spot that, you can apply it to, uh, uh, you know, your own company. Finally, what is your favorite thing about living in Ohio? My favorite thing here is the people, hands down. I mean, this is a, a community that I underappreciated the power of cooperation coming from San Francisco, where it is such a competition. I think the, the way that people get together here to achieve goals that they're excited about is one of the most powerful examples I've ever seen of how people can achieve dreams in a relatively short period of time. And the, the energy that comes from that and the, uh, the neighborhoods and the, the opportunities that go with that is something that I, I think is the, it's the best in the world. And, and I love it. Awesome. Well, Chris, we really appreciate your time. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening. Be sure to add Andrew on Snapchat at andberk.com. That's A-N-D-B-E-R-K to see firsthand a day in the life of an entrepreneur in cities all around the world.